Hey everyone, welcome to the Latent Space Podcast. This is Alessio, partner and CTO and residence and decibel partner. I'm joined by my co-host Swix, writer and editor of Latent Space. Hey, and today we have Jonathan and Abi from Mosaic ML. Welcome to the studio, guys. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks so much for having us. How's it feel recording in a real life uh, studio? Honestly, I've been doing a lot of podcasts yeah. during the pandemic and it has not been the same. No, not been the same. Actually, so you have on your bio that you were, you, so you're primarily based in Boston, New York. New York. Yeah, my, my Twitter bio is a probability distribution of exactly. locations. Exactly. So I DM'd you because I was obviously very interested in MPT7B. I DM'd you. I was like, for the 0.2% of the time that you're in San Francisco, can you come, please come to a podcast studio? And you're like, I'm there next week. <laughs> yeah, it worked out perfectly. <laughs> We're really lucky to have you. Uh, I'll read off uh, a few intros that people should know about you and then uh, you can fill in the blanks. So Jonathan, did your BS and MS at Princeton in programming languages and then found your way into ML. <laughs> for your PhD um, at MIT, where you made a real splash with the lottery ticket hypothesis in 2018, which people can check up on. Uh, I think you've done a few podcasts about it over the years, uh, which has been highly influential. And, um, and we'll talk about sparse models at Mosaic. <laughs> you ha- also had some side quests. Uh, you taught programming for lawyers and you did some law and privacy stuff in, in DC and also did some cryptography stuff. Um, and you've been an assistant professor at Harvard. Before earning your PhD? I've yet to start. You're yet to start. Okay. But you just got your PhD. I technically just got my PhD. Mosaic delayed my defense by about two years. (laughs) It was, I was at 99% done for going on two years, got the job at Harvard. Mosaic started and I had better things to do than write my dissertation for two years. You know, you know, this is like very out of order. Like, <laughs> oh, completely out of order, completely backwards. Go talk to my advisor about that. He's also an advisor at Mosaic and has been from the beginning. And, you know, go talk to him about finishing on time. <laughs> great, great, great. And just to fill it out, uh, Avi, you uh, did your BS and MS at MIT. Uh, you're a researcher at Cerebris. Um, and then uh, you're now a research scientist at Mosaic. Uh, just before we go into Mosaic stuff, I'm actually very curious about Cerebris and, and uh, just that, that space in general. Um, what are they doing that people should know about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think the, the biggest thing to take away with Cerebris is that they're really building, you know, kind of the next gen computing platform beyond like kind of GPUs. Um, they're trying to build a system that uses an entire wafer, you know, rather than cutting up a wafer into smaller chips and trying to train a model on that entire system or actually more recently on many such wafers. Um, so it's, and it's really extraordinary. I think it's like the first time ever that kind of wafer scale computing has ever really worked. And so it's really exciting time to be there, trying to figure out how we can map ML workloads to work um, on a much, much bigger chip. And do you use like a different f- programming language or framework to do that? Or is it like a... Yeah, so I mean, things have changed a bit since I was there. I think um, you can actually run just normal TensorFlow and PyTorch on there. Um, so they've built kind of the software stack that compiles it down. So it actually just kind of works naturally. But yeah. Compiled versions of Python is is a hot topic at the moment with Mojo as well. And at Mosaic, you, you spearheaded the MPC-7B effort. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like it's been maybe like six months, 12 months in the making. We kind of started working on LM sort of back in the summer of last year. Um, and then we came up with this blog post where we kind of profiled a lot of like LMs and saw, hey, the, the cost of training these is actually a lot lower than what people might think. Um, and then since then, you know, being inspired by kind of, you know, Meta's release of the Llama models and lots of other open source work, we kind of started working towards, well, what if we were to release like a really good kind of 7 billion parameter model? And that's what MPT is. You know, we mentioned some of the podcasts you had done, Jonathan. I think in one of them you mentioned Mosaic was not planning on building a, a model and releasing, and obviously you eventually did. So what are some of the 
things that got you there that maybe obviously Lama you mentioned was an inspiration. You now have both the training and like an inference product that you offer. Was this more of a research challenge in a way uh, that you wanted to do or how did the idea came to be? I think there were a couple of things. So we still, Mosaic doesn't have a first class model. We're not an open AI where, you know, our businesses come use our one great model. Our business is built around customers creating their own models. But at the end of the day, if customers are going to create their own models, we have to have the tools to help them do that. And to have the tools to help them do that and know that they work, we have to create our own models to start. We have to know that we can do something great if customers are going to do something great. And one too many people may have challenged me on Twitter about the fact that, you know, (laughs) Mosaic claims all these amazing numbers, but, you know, I believe not to, you know, call out Ross Whiteman here, but, you know, I believe he said at some point, you know, show us the pudding. Um, and so Ross, you know, please let me know how the pudding tastes. But in all seriousness, like, <laughs> I think there is something, this is a demo in some sense. This is to say, we did this in 9.5 days for a really reasonable cost, straight through, 200 no human intervention, 200K. Yeah. Um, you can do this too. Yeah. Uh, and just to reference the numbers that you're putting out, this is the the... Last year, you were making a lot of noise for trading GPT-3 under 450K, which is your your initial estimate. Um, and then it went down to 100K and stable diffusion 160K going down to less than 50K as well. So I will be careful about that 100K number. That's certainly the challenge I've given Oppie to hit. Oh, sorry. I, would, I yeah. wouldn't make the promise that we've hit it yet, but you know, yeah. it's certainly a a target that we have. And I you know, Avi may kill me for saying this. I don't think it's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> so we definitely want to get into like estimation math, right? Like what what needs to happen for those big order magnitude changes to in in infrastructure costs. But uh, let's kind of stick to the MPT seven B story. Yeah, tell us everything. Like you have uh, three different models. One of them, state of the art, essentially on context length. Let's talk about the process of training them. The uh, the decisions that you made. Um, I can go into you know individual details, but I just want to let you let you rip. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I think uh, we started off with the base model, which is kind of for all practical purposes a recreation of Llama Seven B. Um, so it's a seven billion parameter model trained on a trillion tokens. Um, and our goal was like, you know, we should do it efficiently. We should be able to do it like kind of hands free, so we don't have to babysit the runs as they're doing them. And it could be kind of a, a launching point for these fine tuned models. And those fine tune models, you know, on, on the one hand, they're kind of really fun for the community, like the story writer model, which has like a 65,000 length context window. And you can even kind of extrapolate beyond that. Um, but they're, they're also kind of just tr- inspirations, really. So you could kind of start with an MPT7B base and then build your own custom, you know, downstream. If you want a, a long context code model, you could do that with our platform. If you wanted one that was for a particular language, you could do that too. But yeah, so we picked kind of the three variants, chat, instruct, and story writer, just as kind of like inspirations, looking at what people were doing in the community today. Yeah. And what's the beginning of the math to come up with, you know, how many tokens you want to turn it on, how many parameters you want in a bottle, 7 billions and 30 billion seem to be kind of like two of the magic numbers going around right now. Yeah, definitely. Uh, definitely. Yeah. I think like there's sort of these scaling laws, which kind of tell you how to best spend your training compute, if that's all you cared about. So if you want to spend exactly in the most efficient way, there'd be a recipe for doing that. Um, And that we usually go by the chinchilla laws. Now for these models, we actually didn't quite do that because we want to make sure that people can actually run these at home and that they're good for inference. So we trained them kind of beyond those chinchilla points so that we're almost overtraining them. I think there's like a joke going on online that they're like long boys. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that that came up internally because we're training them really, really long durations. So the 7B model, the chinchilla point might be 140 billion tokens. Instead, we trained a trillion, so almost seven times longer than you normally would. So Longboy was the code name. So is it, <laughs> is it the training method? Is it the scaling law that you're trying to coin? Or is it the code name for the 64 billion, uh, 64 
it, it was just an internal joke for okay. the <laughs> for training on way more tokens than you would via chinchilla. Okay. Um, we can and, coin it, long boy scaling. You know, and it, it really stuck. But just to, you know, long boy is spelled with two L's at the beginning. Because, yeah. you know, we wanted the llama thing in yeah. there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Our darn CEO, we have to rein him in. That guy, you know, you can't... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to take away his Twitter password at some point. Um, but, you know, he had to let that one out publicly. And then I believe there was a YouTube video where someone happened to see it mentioned before the model came out and called it the long G-boy or something like that. Like, So, you know, now it's out there in the world. It's out and, there. It's like Sydney. The, Can't put the code it back name in. Is out there. Exactly. There's a beautiful picture, which I think Naveen tweeted out, which um, shows Longboy on a whiteboard. That was the origin of Longboy, in fact. The <laughs> legs of the llama were the two L's in the Longboy. <laughs> well, talk to me about your data choices, right? Like, this is your passion project. Like, what can you tell us about it? Yeah, I think Avi wanted to kill me by the end for trying to use all the GPUs on data <laughs> and none of them on actually training the model. Um, at the end of the day, we know that you need to train these models in lots of data, but there are a bunch of things we don't know. Number one is what kinds of different data sources matter? The other is how much does repetition really matter? And really kind of repetition can be broken down into how much does quality versus quantity matter? Suppose I had the world's best 10 billion tokens of data. Would it be better to train on that 100 times or better to train on a trillion tokens of low quality fresh data? And obviously there's, there's a middle point in between that's probably the sweet spot. But how do you even know what good quality data is? And so, yeah, this is... Nobody knows. And I think the more time I spent, we have a whole data team, so me and several other people, the more time that we spent on this, you know, I came away thinking, gosh, we know nothing. Gosh, if I were back in academia right now, I would definitely go and, you know, write a paper about this because I have no idea what's going on. You would write a paper about it. I'm interested in such a paper. I haven't come across any that exists. Could you frame the central question of such a paper? Yeah, the central question is, what mix of data sets should you use? Okay. Actually, I've you know you had mentioned my law school stuff. I went back to Georgetown Law, where I used to teach, um, in the midst of creating this model, and I actually sat down with a class of law students and asked them. I gave them our exact data sets, our data mixes, um, like how many tokens we had, and I said, create the best data set for your model. Knowing they knew nothing about large language models, they just know that data goes in and it's going to affect the behavior. Um, and I was like, create a mix, and they basically covered all the different trade-offs. Um, you probably want a lot of English language text to start with, that you get that from the web, but do you want it to be multilingual? If so, you're going to have a lot less English text, maybe it'll be worse. Do you want to have code in there? There are all these beliefs that code leads to models being better at logical reasoning, of which I've seen zero evidence. Replit? Um, I mean, Replit made a great code model, but code models leading to like better chain of thought reasoning on the part of language, or code being in the training set leading to better chain of thought reasoning. People claim this all the time, but I've still never seen any real evidence beyond that, you know, one of the generations of the GPT-3 model started supposedly from Code Da Vinci. Yes. And so there's a belief that, you know, maybe that helped, but again, no evidence. You know, there's a belief that spending a lot of time on good sources like Wikipedia is good for the model. Again, no evidence. At the end of the day, we tried a bunch of different data mixes. And the answer was that there are some that are better or worse than others. We did find that the pile, for example, was a really solid data mix, but you know, there were stronger data mixes by our evaluation metrics. And I'll get back to the evaluation question in a minute because that's a really important one. This data set called C4, which is what the original T5 model was trained on, is weirdly good. And everybody, when I posted on this on Twitter, like Stella Biederman from Eleuther mentioned this. I think someone else mentioned this as well. C4 does really well in the metrics and we have no idea why. 
We deduplicated it against our evaluation set, so it's not like it memorized the data. It is just one web scrape from 2019. If you actually look at the T5 paper and see how it was pre-processed, it looks very silly. They removed anything that had the word JavaScript in it because they didn't want to get like no JavaScript warnings. They removed anything with curly braces because they didn't want to get JavaScript in it. They looked at this list of bad words um, and removed anything that had those bad words. If you actually look at the list of bad words, words like gay are on that list. And so there's, you know, it is a very problematic, you know, list of words. But that was the cleaning that leads to a data set that <laughs> seems to be like unbeatable. So that to me says that we know nothing about data. We in fact used a data set called MC4 as well, which is they supposedly did the same pre-processing as C4, just on more web crawls. The English portion is much worse than C4 for reasons that completely escape us. So in the midst of all that, basically I set two criteria. One was I wanted to be at least as good as MC4 English. Like, make sure that we're not making things actively worse. And MC4 English is a nice step up over other stuff that's out there. And two was to go all in on diversity after that, Mm -hmm. making sure that we had some code, we had some scientific papers, we had Wikipedia, because people are going to use this model for all sorts of different purposes. But I think the most important thing, and I'm guessing Avi has a million opinions on this, is you're only as good as your evaluation. And we don't know how to evaluate models for the kind of generation we ask them to do. So past a certain point, you have to kind of shrug and say, well, my evaluation's not even measuring what I care about. Mm-hmm. So let me just make reasonable choices. So you're saying MMLU, Big Bench, that kind of stuff is not convincing for you? A lot of this stuff is, you've got two kinds of tasks. Some of these are more of multiple choice style tasks where there is a right answer. Um, either you ask the model to like spit out A, B, C, or D, or you know, in, if you're more sophisticated, you look at the perplexity of each possible answer and pick the one that the model is most likely to generate. But we don't ask these models to do multiple choice questions. We ask them to do open-ended generation. There are also open-ended generation tasks like summarization. You compare using like a blue score or a rouge score, which are known to be very bad ways of comparing text. At the end of the day, there are a lot of great summaries of a paper. There are a lot of great ways to do open-form generation. And so humans are to some extent the gold standard. Humans are very expensive. It turns out we can't put them into our eval pipeline and just have the humans look at our model every you know 10 minutes. Well, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe soon. Um, are you volunteering, Avi? I, I, I just know we have a great eval team who's, uh, who's helping us build new <laughs> metrics. So <laughs> if they're listening. <laughs> but it's, you know, evaluation of large language models is incredibly hard. And I don't think any of these metrics really truly capture what we expect from the models in practice. Yeah. And we might draw wrong c- conclusions. There's been a debate recently about the emergence phenomenon, whether or not it's a mirage, right? I don't know if you guys have opinions about that. Yeah, kind of stuff. I think I've, I've seen like this paper and, all, and all, even just kind of plots from different people where like, well, maybe it's just an f- artifact of how we're like log scaling our metrics or, you know, we're, we're measuring accuracy, which is a very like harsh zero one thing rather yep. than like kind of something more continuous. But yeah, similar to how what John was saying about evals, like, there's one issue of like you just like our diversity of eval metrics. Like when we put these models up, even like the chat ones, the instruct ones, people are using them for such a variety of tasks. There's just almost no way we could ahead of time like measure all those individual dimensions. And then also, particularly like you know at the seven B scale, um, these models still are not super great yet at like the really hard tasks, like some of the hardest tasks in MMLU and stuff. So sometimes they're barely scoring like above kind of random chance, you know, like on really really hard tasks. So potentially as we you know, aim for, for higher and higher quality models, some of these things will be more useful to us. But we kind of had to like develop MPT7B kind of flying a little bit blind on on what we knew it was coming out and just going off of like, you know, a small set of like common sense reasoning tasks. And of course, you know, just comparing, you know, those metrics versus other open source models. I think like fast training and inference were like one of the goals, right? So there's always the trade-off between doing the hardest thing and like 
doing all the other things quickly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think like, you know, even at the 7B scale, you know, uh, people are trying to run these things on CPUs at home. You know, people are trying to port these to their phones. Basically prioritizing the fact that the small scale would, would lead to wire adoption. That was like a big, um, big thing going on. Yeah. And you mentioned um, flash attention and faster transformer as like two of the core things. Can you maybe explain some of the benefits and maybe why other models don't use it? Yeah, absolutely. So flash attention is this basically faster implementation of full attention. Um, It's like mathematically equivalent, developed by like actually some of our collaborators at at Stanford, uh, the Hazy Hazy Research. Research. Yeah, exactly. What is, Um, what's the name Hazy Research mean? I actually have no idea. I have no clue. (laughs) All these labs have like fun names and I always like the yeah. stories behind them. Yeah, absolutely. We really, really liked Flash Attention. We, I think, had to integrate into our repo even as early as like September of last year. And it really just helps, you know, with training speed and also inference speed. And we kind of bake that into a model architecture. And this is kind of unique amongst all the other hugging face models you see out there. So ours actually, you can toggle between like normal torch attention, which will work anywhere, and flash attention, which will work on GPUs right out of the box. And that way, I think you get almost like a 2x speed up at training time and like somewhere between like 50% to 100% speed up at inference time as well. So again, this is just like, we really, really wanted people to use these and like feel like an improvement. And we, we have the team to, to help deliver that. Another part um, of your choices was alibi position encodings, which people are very interested in. Maybe a lot of people just uh, to sort of take encodings as, as a given, but there's actually a lot of active research. And honestly, it's a lot of, um, it's very opaque as well. Like people don't know how to evaluate encodings, including position encodings. But may, may, could you explain um, alibi and um, your choice? Yeah, for sure. The alibi and uh, kind of flash attention thing all kind of goes together in interesting ways. And even with training stability too. What alibi does really is that it eliminates the the need to have positional embeddings in your model, where previously, if you're a token position one, you have a particular embedding that you add, and you can't really go beyond your max position, which usually is like about 2,000. With Alibi, they get rid of that. Instead, just add a bias to the attention map itself. That's kind of like this slope. And if at inference time you want to go much, much larger, they just kind of stretch that slope out to a longer and longer number of positions. And because the slope is kind of continuous and you can interpolate it, it all works out. Now, now one of the, the funny things we found is like, with flash attention, it saves so much memory and like improves performance so much that even as early as like kind of last year, like we were profiling models with with very long context length up to like you know the 65k that you see in our release. We just never really got around to using it because we didn't really know what we might use it for, and also it was very hard to train stably. So we started experimenting with Alibi and integrate then we suddenly found that oh wow, stability improves dramatically. And now we can actually together with Alibi and long context length, that's how we got to like our story writer model where we can stably train these models out to very, very long context lengths and, and use them performantly. Yeah. And it's also why you don't have a firm number. Most people know have, have a firm number on the context yep. length. Now you're just like eh, 65 to 85. Oh that's, yeah, that's there's, there's, a, there's a big debate. Should it be 64K or 65K? Yeah. <laughs> 65K just plus. Do powers know? of two, so 64 isn't, you know. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we could, I mean, technically the context length is infinite. If you give yeah. me enough memory, um, you know, we can just keep going forever. We had a debate over kind of what number to say is the longest that we could handle. We picked 84K because it's the longest I expect people to see easily in practice. But, you know, we we played around with even longer than that, and I don't see why we couldn't go longer. Yeah. Um, and so for those who haven't read the blog post, you put The Great Gatsby in there and uh, asked it to write an epilogue, which seemed pretty impressive. Yeah, there are a bunch of epilogues floating around internally at Mosaic. That yeah. wasn't my favorite, I think. We all have our own favorites. Yeah. But there are a bunch of really, really good ones. There was one where, you know, it's Gatsby's funeral, and then Nick starts talking to Gatsby's ghost, and Gatsby's <laughs> father shows up, and, you know, then he's at the police station with Tom. It was like a very plot-heavy, like, this is what comes next. And a bunch that were just like very Fitzgerald-esque, like, you know, beautiful writing, 
Um, but it was cool to just see that, wow, the model seemed to actually be working with, you know, all this input. Yeah. Like yeah. it's, it's exciting. You can think of a lot of things you could do with that kind of context length. Is there a trick to fine tuning for a creative task rather than a factual task? I don't know what that is, but probably. Okay. I think, you know, the, the person, um, Alex, who did this, he did fine tune the model explicitly on books. The goal was to try to get a model that was really a story writer. But, you know, beyond that, I'm not entirely sure, actually. It's a great question. Well, no, yeah, I'll ask many, you back. How would you measure that? Uh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Human feedback is <laughs> the solve to all things. Um, which I think there is a labeling question, right? Uh, in computer vision, we had a really, really good episode with RoboFlow on the segment anything model where you, you actually start human feedback on a very, I think it's something like 0.5% of the, the overall uh, final uh, uh, labels that you had, but then you sort of augment them and then you, you fully automate them, um, which I think could be applied to text. It seems intuitive and probably people like Snorkel have already raced ahead on this stuff, but I just haven't seen this applied in the language domain yet. It, I mean, there are a lot of things that seem like they make a lot of sense in machine learning that never work and a lot of things that make <laughs> zero sense that seem to work. So, you know, I've given up trying to even predict yeah, yeah. until I see the data or try it. I just kind of shrug my shoulders and, you know, yeah, you hope for the best. Bring data or else, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The fine-tuning on books, books three is like one of the big data sets and there was the whole Twitter thing about creative comments and like, you know, you know, I used to be a community moderator at a genius.com and we run into a lot of things as well. If you're explaining lyrics, do you have the right to redistribute the lyrics? I know you ended up changing the license on the model from a commercial use permitted well, to like let's a, let them. Yeah, I'm not sure they did. So we we flipped it for about a couple hours. Um, okay, Wait, at, can, can we can we introduce the story from the start? Yeah, just, oh yeah, just yeah, for please. people who are out of the loop. Yeah, so I can I can tell the story very simply. So you know the book three data set does contain a lot of books, and it is you know as I discovered, um, it is a data set that provokes very strong feelings from a lot of folks. <laughs> um, that was one, in, one guy. <laughs> from one person in particular, in fact, um, and that's about it. But it turns out one person who wants a lot of attention can, you know, get enough attention that we're talking about it now. And so we had a we had a discussion internally after that conversation. And we talked about flipping the license. And you know, very late at night, I thought, you know, maybe it's a good thing to do. And decided, you know, actually probably better to just, you know, stand pat's the license is still Apache too. And one of the conversations we had was kind of we hadn't thought about this because we had our heads down, but the Hollywood writer strike took place basically the moment we released the model. Mm -hmm. um, we were releasing a model that could do AI-generated creative content, and that is one of the big Ooh. sticking points during the strike. Oh, the optics are not good. So the optics aren't good, and that's not what we want to convey. This is really, this is a demo of the ability to do really long sequence lengths, and boy, you know, that's that's not timing that we appreciated. And so we talked a lot internally that night about, like, oh, we've had time to read the news, we've had time to take a breath. We don't really love this came to the conclusion that it's better to just leave it as is now and learn the lesson for the future. But certainly that was one of my takeaways is this stuff, you know, there's a societal context around this that it's easy to forget when you're in the trenches, just trying to get the model to train. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, I might've gone with a different thing than story writer. I might've gone with, you know, coder because we seem to have no problem putting programmers out of work with these models. <laughs> oh yeah, please, uh, please, you know, take away this stuff from me. Right. You know, so it's, I think, you know, really, the copyright concerns I leave to the lawyers. Um, that's really, if I learned one thing teaching at a law school, it was that I'm not a lawyer and all this stuff is a little complicated, especially open source licenses were not designed for this kind of world. They were designed for a world of forcing people to be more open, not forcing people to be more closed. And I think, you know, that was part of the impetus here was to try to use licenses to make things more closed, um, which is, I think, against the grain of the open source ethos. So that struck me as a little bit strange. But I think the most important part is, you know, we want to be thoughtful and we want to do the right thing. And in that case, you know, I hope with all that interesting licensing fun you saw, 
we're trying to be really thoughtful about this. And it's hard. I learned a lot from that experience. There's also, I think, an open question of fair use, right? Is training on words a fair use? Because you don't have a monopoly on words, but some certain arrangements of words you do. And who is to say, like, how much is memorization by a model versus actually learning and internalizing and then sometimes happening to land at the right, the same result. <laughs> and, and if I've learned one lesson, I am not going to be the person to answer yeah, that question. Right, exactly. And so my position is, you know, we will try to make this stuff open and available yep. and, you know, let the community make decisions about what they are or aren't comfortable using. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, it still strikes me as a little bit weird that someone is trying to use these open source licenses to, you know, to close the ecosystem and not to make things more open. That's very much against the ethos of why these licenses were created. So the official Mosaic position, I guess, is like before you use MPC seven B for anything commercial, check your own lawyers, Talk to not, your lawyers. not Mosaic's lawyers. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. Right. I'm, you know, right. our lawyers are not your lawyers. Exactly. And, you know, make the best decision for yourself. We've tried to be respectful of the content creators, and you know, at the end of the day, this is complicated, and this is something that it's ha- new law. It's yeah. new law. It's new law that hasn't been established yet, um, but it's a place where we're going to continue to try to do the right thing, um, and it's. I think one of the commenters, you know, I really appreciated this, said, you know, well, they're trying to do the right thing, but nobody knows what the right thing is to even do. <laughs> you know, the, I guess the, the most right thing would have been to literally not release a model at all. But I don't think that would have been the best thing for the community either. Cool. Well, thanks. Well handled. Uh, we had to cover it. Just oh, yes. Yeah, no, a big piece of news. It, it's, a, it's been on my mind a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been very thoughtful about it. Okay. So a, a lot of these other ideas in terms of architecture, flash attention, alibi, and the other data sets were contributions from the rest of the, let's just call it open community of, of machine learning advancements. Uh, but Mosaic in particular had some stability improvements to mitigate loss spikes, quote unquote, uh, which uh, I, I took to mean uh, your existing set of tools. Uh, maybe we can just co- kind of cover that. I don't want to sort of put words in your mouth, but when you say things like, uh, please enjoy my empty logbook, how much of an oversell is that? How much, you know, how much is that marketing versus how much is that reality? Oh yeah, that, that one's real. Yeah. <laughs> it's like fully end to end. And I think, um, so, it, so maybe like what, what specific features of Mosaic ML did you totally, did you, totally yeah. yeah. I think I'll break this into two parts. One is like training stability, right? Knowing that your model is going to like basically get to the end of the training without loss spikes. Um, and I think you know at the seven B scale, you know, for some models like it, it's not that big of a deal. As you train for longer and longer durations, we found that it's trickier and trickier to avoid these loss spikes. And so we actually spent a long time figuring out, you know, what can we do about our initialization about our optimizers, about the architecture that basically prevents these loss spikes. And, you know, even in our training run, if you zoom in, you'll see small intermittent spikes, but they recover within a few hundred steps. And so that's kind of the magical bit. Our line one of defenses, we recover from loss spikes, like just naturally, right? Mm-hmm. Our line two defense was that we use determinism and basically really smart resumption strategies. So that if something like catastrophic happened, we can resume very quickly, like a few batches before, and apply some of these like uh, interventions. So we had these kind of prepared as like a plan B, but we didn't have to use them at all for MPT7B training. So that, that was kind of like a, a lucky break. And the third part of like basically getting all the way to the empty law book is having the right training infrastructure. So this is basically what like is one of the big selling points of the Mosaic Well platform is that when you try to train these models on hundreds of GPUs, not many people outside, you know, like deep industry research on this, but the GPUs fail like a lot. <laughs> um, I would say like almost once every like thousand A100 days. Um, so for us on like a big 512 cluster, every two days, basically the run will fail. Um, and this is like either due to GPUs like falling off the bus, like that's, that's a real error we see, or kind of networking failures or something like that. And so in those situations, what people have normally done is they'll have an on-call team that's just sitting around the clock 24-7 
on Slack when something goes wrong. And if then they'll basically like try to inspect the cluster, take nodes out that are broken, restart it. And it's a huge pain. Like we ourselves did this for a few months. And as a result of that, because we're building such a platform, we basically step-by-step automated every single one of those processes. So now when a run fails, we have this automatic kind of like watchdog that's watching. It will basically stop the job, test the nodes, coordinate any ones that are broken, and relaunch it. And because our software is all deterministic, has fast resumption stuff, it just continues on gracefully. So within that log, but you can see sometimes I think maybe at like 2 a.m. or something, the run was failed. And within a few minutes, it's back up and running. And all of us are just sleeping peacefully. <laughs> I do want to say that was hard one. Mm. Um, certainly, this is not how things were going you know, many months ago. Hardware failures. We had on-calls who were you know, getting up at 2 in the morning to you know, figure out which node had died for what reason, restart the job, have to cordon the node. Um, we were seeing catastrophic loss spikes really frequently, even at the 7B scale, that were just completely derailing runs. And so this was a step-by-step just ratcheting our way there, as Abhi said, to the point where you know, many models are training at the moment, and I'm sitting here in the studio and not worrying one bit about whether the runs <laughs> are going to continue. Yeah. So I'm not like so much of a data center hardware kind of guy, but isn't there existing software to do this for CPUs? And like, what's different about this domain? Does this question make sense at all? Yeah. So when I think about like, I think back to all the Google fault tolerance papers I read, you know, as an undergrad or grad student uh-huh. about, you know, building distributed systems. A lot of it is that, you know, each CPU is doing, say, an individual unit of work. You've got a database that's distributed across your cluster. You want to make sure that one CPU failing can't, or one machine failing can't, you know, delete data. So you you replicate it. You know, you have protocols like Paxos where you're literally you've got state machines that are replicated with, you know, with leaders and backups and things like that. And in this case, you were performing one giant computation where you cannot afford to lose any node. If you lose a node, you lose model state. If you lose a node, you can't continue. It may be that that in the future we actually you know, create new versions of a lot of our distributed training libraries that do have backups and where data is replicated so that if you lose a node, you can detect what node you've lost and just continue training without having to stop the run, you know, pull from a checkpoint, yeah. restart again on different hardware. But for now, we're certainly in a world where if anything dies, that's the end of the run and you have to go back and recover from it. Yeah, like I think a big part, a big word there is like synchronous data parallelism, right? So like we're basically saying that on every step, every GPU is going to do some work. They're going to stay in sync with each other and average their their gradients and continue. Now, there are like algorithmic techniques to get around this. Like you could say, oh, if a GPU dies, just forget about it. All the data that's going to see, we'll just forget about it. We're not going to train on it. But, but we don't like to do that currently because um, it makes us give up determinism and stuff like that. Maybe in the future, as you go to extreme scales, we'll start looking to some of those methods. But at the current time, it's like we wanted determinism. We wanted to have a run that like we could perfectly replicate if we need to. And it was the goal was to figure out how to run it on a big cluster without without humans have to babysit it. Babysit it. So as you mentioned, these models are kind of the starting point for a lot of your customers to start. You have a inference product, you have a training product. You previously had a composer product that is now kind of not rolled into, but you have like a super set of it, which is like the LLM foundry. How are you seeing that change, you know, like from the usual MLOps stack and like how people train things before versus now? They're starting from, you know, one of these MPT models and going from there. Like, what should teams think about as they come to you and start their journey? So I think there's a key distinction to make here, which is, you know, when you say starting from MPT models, you can mean two things. One is actually starting from one of our checkpoints, which I think very few of our customers are actually going to do. And one is starting from our configuration. You can look at our friends at Replit for that, where, you know, 
MPT was in progress when Reflet came to us and said, hey, we need a 3 billion parameter model by next week on all of our data. <laughs> we're like, well, here you go. This is what we're doing. And if it's good enough for us, um, hopefully it's good enough for you. And that's basically the message we want to send to our customers. MPT is basically clearing a path all the way through where they know that they can come bring their data, they can use our training infrastructure, they can use all of our amazing orchestration and other tools that Avi just mentioned for fault tolerance. They can use Composer, which is you know still at the heart of our stack. And then the LLM Foundry is really the specific model configuration. They can come in and they know that thing is going to train well because we've already done it multiple times. Let's dig in a little bit more on what should people have ready before they come talk to you? So data, architecture, eval that they're looking for? like. Yeah, I, I mean, I think we'll accept customers at any kind of stage in their pipeline. You know, like I'd say, sometimes there, there's archetypes of people who have built products around like some of these API companies and reach a stage or maturity level where it's like we want our own custom models now, either for the purpose of reducing costs, right? Like our inference service is quite a bit cheaper than like using the APIs, or because they want some kind of customization that you can't really get from the other API providers. I'd say like the most important things to have before training a big model, you know, you want to have good eval metrics, you know, some kind of score that you can track as you're training your models and scaling up that can tell you you're progressing. And it's really funny, like a lot of times customers will are really excited about training the models, right? It's really fun to like launch jobs on hundreds of GPUs, just all around. It's it's super fun. <laughs> but then they'll be like, but wait, what are we going to measure? Not just the training loss, right? I mean, it's got to be more than that. So eval metrics is like a, it's a good prereq. Also, you know, your data, you know, either coming with your own pre-training or fine-tuning data and having like a strategy to clean it, or we can help clean it too. I think we're, we're building a lot of tooling around that. And I think once you have those two kind of inputs and sort of the budget that you want, we can pretty much walk you through the rest of it, right? Like that's kind of what we do. We, we helped uh, Replit recently, where we helped build CRFM's model for biomedical language a while back. Um, we That's can the Center of Research for Foundation Models. Exactly, exactly. Out of Stanford. Just spelling and, it out for people. <laughs> of course. No, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no. You've done more of these than I have. <laughs> and, um, I think uh, basically it's sort of we can help you figure out what model should I train to scale up so that when I go for my big run, like kind of your hero run, it's uh, it's predictable. You can feel confident that it's going to work and you'll kind of know what quality you're going to get out before you have to spend like a few hundred thousand dollars. The Replit, Reza from Replit was on the podcast last week and uh, they had human eval and then they had a uh, I'm John eval. eval, which is like vibes <laughs> yep. based. I'm John in the loop, <laughs> yeah. basically. And I I do think the vibes based eval cannot be you know underrated. Really, at the I mean at the end of the day we we did stop our models and do vibe checks, and nice. we did as we monitor our models. One of our evals was we just had a bunch of prompts and we would watch the answers as the model yeah. trained yeah. and see if they changed. Because honestly, you know I don't really believe in any of these eval metrics to capture what we care about. But mm-hmm. when you ask it to you know. I don't know. I think one of our prompts was suggest games for a three-year-old and a seven-year-old that would be fun to play. Like that was a lot more valuable to me personally to see how that answer evolved and changed over the course of training. So you know, and human eval. Just to clarify for folks, human human eval is an automated evaluation metric. There's no humans in it at all. There's no humans in it at (laughs) all. Terribly named. It's really badly named. I got so confused the first time that someone brought that to me, and I was like, "No, we're not bringing humans in. (laughs) No, it's it's automated. They just called it a bad name." And there's only 117 of them, or something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And and it's for code specifically, right? Yeah, yeah. It's very weird. It's a it's a weird, confusing name that I hate. But you know, when other metrics are called hella swag, like you know, you You just kind of roll with it at this point. You're doing live evals now. So one, one of the tweets that I saw from you was that it is uh, important that you do it parallelized. Uh, maybe you kind of want to yeah, explain yeah. Uh, what, what you guys did. Yeah, for sure. So with LLM Foundry, there's, there's many pieces to it. There's obviously the core training piece, but there's also you know tools for evaluation of models. And we kind of have like one of the, I think it's like the the fastest like evaluation framework. Um, basically, it's like multi-GPU compatible. 
It runs with Composer. It can support really, really big models. So basically, like our framework runs so fast that even as our models are training, we can run these metrics live during the, the training. So like if you have a dashboard like weights and biases, you kind of watch all these evil metrics. We have like we have like 15 or 20 of them, honestly, that we track during the run and adds like negligible overhead. So we can actually watch as our model's going and feel confidence. Like it's not like we wait until the very last day to to test if the model's good or not. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I love that we've gotten this far into the conversation. We still haven't talked about efficiency and speed. Those are usually <laughs> our two watchwords at Mosaic, which is, you know, that's great. That says that we're doing a lot of other cool stuff. But at the end of the day, um, you know, cost comes first. If you can't afford it, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, getting things down cheap enough that, you know, we can monitor in real time, getting things down cheap enough that we can even do it in the first place. Mm. That's the basis for everything we do. Do you think a lot of the questions that we have around, you know, what data sets we should use and things like that are just because training was so expensive before that we just haven't run enough experiments to figure that out? And is that one of your goals, trying to make it cheaper so that we can actually get the answers? Yeah, that's a big part of my personal conviction for being here. I think I'm I'm still in my heart the second year grad student who was jealous of all his friends who had GPUs and he didn't. And I couldn't train any models except on my laptop. And that, I mean, the lottery ticket experiments began on my laptop. Then I had to beg for 1K80 so that I could run MNIST. And I'm still that person deep down in my heart. And I'm a believer that, you know, if we want to do science and really understand these systems and understand how to make them work well, understand how they behave, understand what makes them safe and reliable, we need to make it cheap enough that we can actually do science. And science involves running dozens of experiments. When I finally, you know, cleaned out my my GCS bucket from my PhD, I deleted a million model checkpoints. I'm not kidding by that. It was over a million model checkpoints. That is the kind of science we, you know, that's just what it takes. In the same way that if you're in a biology lab, you don't just grow one cell and say like, eh, the drug seems to work on that cell. Like, there's a lot more science you have to do before you really know. Yeah, and I think one of the special things about Mosaic's kind of position as well is that. We have such so many customers all trying to train models that basically we have the incentive to like devote all these resources and time to do this science because when we learn like which pieces actually work, which ones don't, we get to help many, many people, right? And so that kind of like that aggregation process, I think like is really important for us. I remember way back there was a paper by Google that basically would investigate like batch sizes or something like that. And it was this paper that must have cost a few million dollars to run all experiments. And it was just like, wow, what a what a benefit to the whole community now. Like now we all get to learn from that. We get we get to save. We don't have to spend those millions of dollars anymore. So I think um kind of mosaic mosaic science, like the insights we get on on data, on pre-training architecture, on all these different things, um, that that's why customers come to us. Yeah. You guys did some really good stuff on PubMed GBT as well. That's that's the first time I heard of you, of you, and that's also published to the community. Yeah, that that one was really fun. We were like, well, no one's really trained like fully from scratch domain specific models before. Like, what if we just did a biomed one? Would it still work? And uh, yeah, we were really excited that it did. Um, we'll probably have some follow up soon. I think later this summer. Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned on that. Um, but I I will say just in general, it's a really important value for us to be open. In some sense, we have no incentive not to be open. You know, we make our money off of helping people train better. There's no cost to us in sharing what we learn with the community. Because really, at the end of the day, we make our money off of those custom models and great infrastructure and, and putting all the pieces together. That's honestly where the Mosaic name came from. Not off of like, oh, we've got, you know, this one cool secret trick that we won't tell you or, you know, closing up. I sometimes, you know, in the past couple of weeks, I've talked to my friends at places like Brain or, you know, what used to be Brain, now Google DeepMind. Oh, I. RIP brain. Yeah, RIP brain. I, I spent a lot of time there and it was really a formative time for me. Um, so I miss it. But 
you know, I kind of feel like we're one of the biggest open research labs left in industry, which Ooh. is a very sad state of affairs because we're not very big. Um, but at least <laughs> can, can you see how big the team is actually? Yeah, we we're about 15 researchers. So we're, we're tiny compared to, you know, the huge army of researchers I remember at Brain or at FAIR or at DeepMind back, you know, when I was there during their heydays. Um, you know, but everybody else is kind of, you know, closed up and isn't saying very much anymore. Yeah. And we're going to keep talking and we're going to keep sharing. And, you know, we will try to be that vanguard to the best of our ability. We're very small and I, I can't promise we're going to do what those labs used to do in terms of scale or quantity of research. But we will share what we learn and we will try to create resources for the community. Um, I, I don't know. I just, I believe in openness fundamentally. I'm an academic at heart. And it's sad to me to watch that and go away from a lot of the big labs. We just had a live pod about the, you know, OpenAI Snowmoat uh, post that came out. And it was one of the first time I really dove into LoRa and some of the these new technologies. Like, how are you thinking about what it's going to take for like the open approach to really work? Obviously, today, GPT-4 is still, you know, probably like state-of-the-art model for a lot of tasks. Do you think some of the innovation and kind of like retraining methods that we have today are enough if enough people like you guys are like running these these research groups that are open or do you think we still need a step function improvement there i think one important point here is the idea of coexistence i think when you look at i don't know who won linux or windows the answer is yes <laughs> microsoft bought github and has windows subsystem for linux Linux runs a huge number of our servers, and Microsoft is still a wildly profitable company, probably the most successful tech company right now. So who won open source or closed source? Yes. <laughs> um, and I think that's a similar world that we're going to be in here, where you know it's going to be different things for different purposes. I would not run Linux on my laptop, personally, because I like connecting to Wi-Fi and printing things. But I wouldn't run Windows on one of my servers. And so I do think what we're seeing with a lot of our customers is, do they choose OpenAI or Mosaic? Yes. There's a purpose for each of these. You have to send your data off to somebody else with OpenAI's models. That's a, a risk. But GPT-4 is amazing. And I would never promise someone that if they come to Mosaic, they're going to get a GPT-4 quality model. That's way beyond our means and not what we're trying to do anyway. But there's also a whole world for you know domain-specific models, context-specific models that are really specialized, proprietary, trained on your own data that can do things that you could never do with one of these big models. You can customize in crazy ways. Like GPT-4 is not going to hit 65K context length for a very long time because they've already trained that model and you know they haven't even released the 32K version yet. So we can, you know, we can do things differently, you know, by being flexible. So I think the answer to all this is yes, but we can't see the open source ecosystem disappear. And that's the scariest thing for me. I hear a lot of talk in academia about, you know, whatever happened to that academic research on this field called information retrieval. Well, in 1999, it disappeared. Why? Because Google came along and who cares about information retrieval research when you, know, you have a Google scale, you know, web scale database. So you know, there's a balance here. We need to have both. I want to applaud you then. <laughs> well, maybe edit in like a little crowd applause uh, line because I, I think that um, that is something that, as a research community, as people like interested in progress, like we need to see these things instead of just uh, just seeing marketing papers from the advertising GPT four. <laughs> yeah, I I think I you know to get on my soapbox for ten more seconds. Go ahead. When I talk to policymakers about you know the AI ecosystem, the usual fear that I bring up is innovation will slow because of lack of openness. I've been complaining about this for years and it's finally happened. Mm. Why is Google sharing you know, these papers? Why is OpenAI sharing these papers? 
there are a lot of reasons, you know, I have my own beliefs, but it's not something we should take for granted that everybody's sharing the work that they do. And it turns out, well, I think we took it for granted for a while and now it's gone. I think it's going to slow down the pace of progress in a lot of cases. Each of these labs has a bit of a monoculture and being able to pass ideas back and forth was a lot of what kept, you know, scientific progress moving. So it's imperative, not just, you know, for the open source community and for academia, but for the progress of the technology that we have a vibrant open source research community. That is a pre- there's a preview of like the ecosystem commentary that we're, we're going to do, but I want to close out some stuff on Mosaic. You launched a bunch of stuff this month, a lot of stuff. Uh, actually, was, I was listening to you on Gradient Descent, uh, another podcast we know and love. Uh, and you said, you also said you were not going to do inference. And, and, and then last week you were like, here's Mosaic ML inference. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, maybe just a, at a high level, what was Mosaic ML and then what is it growing into? Like, how do you conceptualize this? Yeah. And I will say Gradient, when Gradient Descent was recorded, we weren't doing inference and had no plans to do it. It took a little while for the podcast to get out. Um, in the meantime, okay. basically, you know, one thing I've learned at a startup, and I'm sure Avi can comment on this as well, focus is the most important thing. We have done our best work when we've been focused on doing one thing really well and our worst work when we've tried to do lots of things. Yeah. So we don't want to do inference. We don't want to have had to do inference. Um, and at the end of the day, our customers were begging us to do it because they wanted a good way to serve the models and they liked our ecosystem. And so in some sense, we got dragged into it kicking and screaming. We're very excited to have a product. We're going to put our best foot forward and make something really, truly amazing. But there is, you know, that's something that we were reluctant to do. You know, our customers convinced us it would be good for our business. It's been wonderful for business and we are going to put everything into this. But, you know, back when Gradient Descent came out, I was thinking like, or when we recorded it, we're focused. Oh, oh God, like focus is the most important thing. I've learned that the hard way multiple times at Mosaic. Avi can tell you, like, <laughs> you know, I've made a lot of mistakes on not focusing enough. Um, boy, inference, that's a whole second thing and a whole different animal from training. And at the end of the day, when we founded the company, our belief was that inference was relatively well-served at that time. There were a lot of great inference companies out there. Um, training was not well-served, especially efficient training. And we had something to add there. I think we've discovered that as the nature of the models have changed, the nature of what we had to add to inference changed a lot, and there became an opportunity for us to contribute something. But that was not the plan. But now we do want to be the place that people come when they want to train these big, complex, difficult models and know that it's going to go right the first time and they're going to have something they can serve right away. Um, you know, really the replicate example of, you know, with 10 days to go saying, hey, can you please train that model? And, you know, three or four days later, the model was trained and we were just having fun doing interesting fine tuning work in it for the rest of the 10 days. You know, that also requires good inference. That's true. That's true. Like so running evals and, and fine tuning. I'm just putting my business hat on and, you know, and Alessio as well. Like uh, I've actually had fights with potential co-founders about this on the primary business on Mosaic being training, right? Like essentially a one-time cost. Who and told so, you it was a one-time cost? Well, I, Wait, who, uh, no, who told no, you no, that? No, 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 no. Well, that, correct me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let me correct you two ways. Um, as our CEO Naveen would say, if he were here, when you create version 1.0 of your software, do you then fire all the engineers? <laughs> of course not. You never, like, MPT has a thousand different things we wanted to do that we never got to. So, you know, there yeah. will be future models. And, and the data it's been trained on is also changing over time too, right? If you want to ask it anything about, I guess, like, May of 2023, we'll have to retrain it further and so on, right? And I think this is especially true for customers who run, like, kind of things that need to be up to date on world knowledge. So I, I think, like, you know, the other thing I would say too is that the models you have today are certainly not the best models we'll ever produce, right? They're going to get smaller, they're going to get faster, they're going to get cheaper, they're going to get lower latency, they're going to get like higher quality, right? And so you always want like the next gen version of MPT and the one after that and one after that. There's a reason that even the GPT series goes three, four, and we know there's going to be a five, right? 
Um, so I, I also don't see as a, as a one-time cost. Yeah. yeah. And I, if you want to cite a stat on this, there are very, very few stats floating around on training versus inference cost. Mm. One is this blog post from, I think, David Patterson at Google um, on the energy usage of ML at Google. And they break down and say three-fifths of energy over the previous three years. I think this was a 2022 article were for inference and two-fifths were for training. And so actually that, you know, this is Google, which is serving models to billions of users. They're probably the most inference-heavy place in the world. And it's only a two-fifths, three-fifths breakdown. And that's energy. Training hardware is probably more expensive because it has fancier networking. That could be a 50-50 cost breakdown. And that's Google. For a lot of other folks, it's going to be weighed even more heavily in, in favor of training. Amazing answer. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, we can we can touch on a little bit on uh, efficiency and speed because we we uh, did it mention about that. So right now, people spend between three to ten days. You you spend ten days on GP, on MPC seven. Repit spent three days. What's feasible? What's what do you want to get it down to? Oh, for for these original models, yeah. yeah so I think um, this is probably one of the most exciting years I think for training efficiency, just generally speaking, because we have the the combination of a couple of things. Like one is like this next generation of hardware, like the H one hundreds coming out from NVIDIA, which on their own should be like at least like a two X improvement or the one hundreds. On top of that, there's also a new floating point format, FP eight, um, which could also deliver That alone does it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. How, what, why? Oh, the FP eight yeah. thing? Yeah. So basically what's happening is that, you know, when we do all of our math, like in the the models, matrix multiplication math, we do it in a particular precision. We started off in 32 bit precision a few years ago and then NVIDIA came out with 16 bit. And over the course of several years, we've all figured out how to do 16-bit training. And that basically, you know, due to the harder requirements, like increase the throughput by 2x, reduce the cost by 2x. That's about to happen again with FP8, like starting this year. And with Mosaic, you know, we've already started profiling LLM training with FP8 on H100s. We're seeing really, really good improvements there. And so you're going to see a huge cost reduction this year just from those hardware facts alone. On top of that, you know, there's a lot of architectural modifications we're looking at, like ways to introduce some forms of sparsity, not necessarily like the, the, the super unstructured sparsity like lottery ticket, um, which Jonathan I'm sure is really happy to talk about. Um, <laughs> but but um, are there ways of doing like, you know, gating or like kind of like MOE style architectures? So, you know, I think originally, you know, what was like 500K, I think, to try and train a GPT quality model. If at the end of the year we could get that down to 100K, that would be like fantastic. That is a this year type of thing, not not like oh, that, a distant future. That's not future. a pie in the sky thing. Okay, yeah. it is not. It's not a place we are now, but I think it is a, you know, I don't think more than a year in the future these days because it's impossible. I think that is very much a twenty twenty three thing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and hold me to that later this year. GPT three for a hundred k. Let's go. Um, and then also stable diffusion originally reported to be six hundred k. You guys can get it done for under fifty. Anything different about image models that we should image to text uh, text um, image? I mean, I think the the most important part in all this is. You know, it took us a while to get ResNet 50 down by almost 7x. That was our original kind of proof of concept project for Mosaic, you know, just at the beginning to show like, you know, we can even do this and our investors should give us more money. But what I love about newer models that come out is they're always really slow. We haven't figured out how to optimize them yet. And so there's so much work to be done. So getting, you know, in that case, I guess from the cost you mentioned, like a 12x cost reduction in stable diffusion, honestly, was a lot easier than getting a 7x for ResNet 50 on ImageNet or a 3x for BERT. Because the architecture was much newer, and there were a lot of inefficiencies to improve, um, you know, I'm guessing that's going to continue to be the case as we lean toward the bleeding edge and try to, you know, push the bleeding edge. I hope that you know, in some sense, you'll see smaller speedups from us because the new models will come from us and they'll already be fast. So that's the making existing things better with the the long boy, the 65k <laughs> context yeah. window. Uh, you've doubled state of the art. There was the RMT a couple of weeks ago that had a 
possible 1 million. Uh, that's the unlimited former thing that came out last week, which is theoretically limitless context. What should people think about trade-offs and implications? You mentioned memories kind of starts to become one of the, of the bounds. Yeah. What's the right number? Like, is it based on customers' needs? Like, how would you advise customers and startups who might be building their own models? It's all contextual. You know, there's a lot of buzz coming for long contexts lately with a lot of these papers. None of them are exact in terms of the way that they're doing attention. And so there's, you know, to some extent, there's an approximation or a trade-off between doing some kind of inexact or approximate or hierarchical or, you know, non-quadratic attention versus doing it explicitly correctly the quadratic way. I'm a big fan of approximation, so I'm eager to dig into these papers. If I've learned one thing from writing and reading papers, it's to believe nothing until I've implemented it myself. We've certainly been let down many, many, many times at Mosaic by papers that look very promising until we implement them and realize, you know, here's how they cook the books on their data. Here's, you know, the one big caveat that didn't show up in the paper. So I look at a lot of this with skepticism until, you know, I believe nothing until I re-implement it. And in general, I'm rewarded for doing that because, you know, a lot of this stuff doesn't end up working quite as well in practice as is promised in a paper. The incentives just aren't there, which is part of the reason we went with just pure quadratic attention here. Like, it's known to work. We didn't have to make an approximation. There's no asterisk or caveat. This was, in some sense, sheer force of will by our amazing engineers. So people want super long context because, you know, they want to feed more documents. And right now people do it with embeddings and feed them into the the context window. How do you kind of see that changing? Are we going to get to a point where, like, you know, maybe it's 64K, maybe it's 120K, where it's like, okay... You know, semantic search and embeddings are going to work better than just running a million parameters, like a, a million token context. Do, do, do you want to say the famous thing about 64K? Does somebody want to say that that statement? The you know the 64K is all you'll ever need. The Bill Gates statement about RAM. Oh. Um, <laughs> Andre Karpathy has actually made that comparison before. That uh, context is essentially RAM. If I get quoted here saying 64K is all you need, I will be wrong. <laughs> we have no idea. People are going to get ambitious. Um, yes. GPT-4 is probably taking an image and turning it into a bunch of tokens and plugging it in. I'm guessing each image is worth a hell of a lot of tokens. Um, maybe that's not why a thousand they, words. Not a thousand words, but you know, probably a thousand words worth of tokens, if not even more. So maybe that's the reason they did 32K. Maybe, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll want to put videos in these models. Like, Every time that we say, ah, that not that model big enough? Somebody just gets more ambitious. Who knows? Right. Um, you've famously made one counter-trend uh, bet, which is uh, you, you're actually betting that uh, Transformers will stick around for a long time. How is that counter-trend? Counter-trend is, in, you just said a lot of things won't last, right? A, a lot of things will get replaced uh, really easily. But Transformers will stick around. I mean, look at the history here. How long did convolutional neural networks stick around for? Oh, wait, they're still here and vision transformers still haven't replaced them. How long did RNN stick around for? Decades. And, you know, they're still alive and kicking in a bunch of different places. So, you know, the fundamental architecture improvements are really hard to come by. I can't wait to collect from Sasha on that bet. I, th- I think a lot of your bet hinges on w- what counts as attention, right? <laughs> <laughs> Well, what do you mean? Well, how how can that change? Oh, because it will be approximated. Well, I suppose if if we ever replace like the Q.K. multiplication or something that looks sort of like it, I, I wonder who 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 will come out on top here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, is a feed forward network, you know, that's fully connected, just a transformer with very simple attention. Um, mm. So Sasha better be very generous to me because it's possible <laughs> that could change. But at the end of the day, we're still doing transformers the way you know Vaswani at all intended back six years ago now. So. I don't know. Things 
six years is a pretty long time. What's another four years at this point? What do you think will replace it? If you lose the bet, what do you think you would have lasted? If I knew that, I'd be working on it. I think it's going to be just like MLPs, you know. That, that's the only that's the only way we can go. I think at this point because the, the MLPs, architect- I, I don't know. I'm oh, just just basically down to to um to linear layers. And oh, multi-layer perceptrons. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay, okay, exactly got it, got yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah, the architecture has been been stripped, sim- simplified so much at this point. I think uh, there's very little left other than like some linear layers, some like residual connections, and and of course the attention um dot product. Yeah. But you're assuming things will get simpler. Maybe things will get more complicated. Yeah, there's, some, true. there's some buzz about like the hippo models, hungry, hungry hippos. I, I mean, there's always buzz about something. <laughs> um, you know, that's not to dismiss this work or any other work, but there's always buzz about something. I tend to wait a little bit to see if things stand the test of time for like two weeks. Um, at this point, it used to be you know a year, but now it's down to two weeks. Oh. But you know, I'm, I don't know, I, I don't like to follow the hype. I like to see what sticks around, what people actually manage to build off of. I have a follow-up question actually on that. Uh, what's a what's a egregiously overrated paper that once you actually looked into it fell apart completely? I'm not going down that path. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I you know I even even though I think there are papers that you know did not hold up under scrutiny, I don't think any of this was out of malice, and so I don't want to go down that path. I know you already talked about your focus on open research. Are you mostly going to focus on open models, or are there also are you working on configurations that are more? Just for your customers in private, like what percentage of your time are you focusing on on open work? It's a little fuzzy. I mean, I think at the end of the day, you have to ask, what is the point of our business? Our business is not just to train a bunch of open models and give them to the world. That would our VCs probably wouldn't be very happy <laughs> if that were the case. The open models serve our business because they're demos. A demo does not mean we give away everything. Um, a demo does not mean every single thing we do is shared with the world, but we do have a business imperative to share with the world, which I kind of like. That was part of the design of the company, was making sure we had an imperative to do science and an imperative to share. But we are still a company and we do have to make money. But it would be a disaster for our business if we didn't share. And that's by design from the start. So you know, there's certainly going to be some work that we do that is for our customers only. But by and large, for anything that we want to advertise to customers, there has to be something of that that is meaningful and useful that's out there in the world. Otherwise, we can't convince people that we have it. Yeah, I think like the, our recent inference product also like makes the decision easier for us, right? So even some of these open models like we've developed so far, um, you can actually like you know uh, query them on our inference API, like our starter tier, and we basically charge like a, a per token fee, very very similar to the other API providers. So there there are pathways by which you know like even the open models we provide for free still end up like helping our business out, right? You can customize them, deploy them on our on our platform, and that way we we still make money off of them. Do you want to jump into? Lightning ground, anything else that you guys want to cover that we didn't get to? This has been great. These are great questions. Do you want to dish on like why sparsity is not a focus for Mosaic? Um, I can just say that, you know, sparsity (laughs) is not a focus for Mosaic and I am definitely over lottery tickets. When I give my Mosaic talk, the first slide is a, you know, a circle with a slash through it over a lottery ticket. (laughs) Um, And anyone who mentions lottery tickets, I ask to leave the room. Um, Because, you know, there's other work out there, but Avi, please feel free to dish on sparsity. Yeah, I I think it really comes down to the fact that we we don't have hardware yet that can accelerate it, right? Or at least it's been mostly true for a long period of time. So the kinds of sparsity that the lottery ticket was working on was like, if you put random zeros in in the weights, you know? And basically, we found basically over the past years that, yes, you can turn most of the weights to zeros, and the model still does kind of work. 
But there's no hardware out there that can take a matrix with a bunch of zeros and one without and make it go fast. Now, the one caveat for this, and this is going to sound like a bit of an advertisement, is, is Cerebrus, actually. And they've been, since the beginning, they've built that architecture for sparsity. And they've actually published some research papers just earlier this year showing that, yes, they really can train with sparsity and get This equal. is a sparse UPT. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, right. So the, the final missing piece is really like, okay, we have the science to show you can train with sparse models, you know, from initialization even. Or, or close to initialization. Um, the last piece is just, is there a piece of hardware that actually speeds it up and gives you a cost savings? In which case, like the, the field is wide open. Yeah. The other big challenge here is that if you want to make sparsity go fast in general right now on standard hardware, you do need it to be structured in various ways. And any incremental amount of structure that you force on the sparsity dramatically reduces the quality of the resulting model that you get. Up to the point where if you remove just you know entire neurons from the model, you're just making the layers smaller. And that really hurts the quality of the model. So these Skill models is all you need. <laughs> these models love unstructured sparsity. Um, and yeah, if there were a chip and a software package that made it really, really easy to accelerate it, I bet we would be doing it at Mosaic right now. This is like Sarah Hooker's point with like the hardware lottery post talking about lotteries. Absolutely. Where, you know, if you don't have the right hardware, some models, architectures just can't emerge quickly enough. Yeah, this, there, there's like an invariant to think of, which is that Today's popular models always run fast on today's hardware. Like this, mm-hmm. this has to be true. <laughs> right. Like there's no such thing as a popular model that runs slow because no one would have developed it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like with the new architectures, right? If there's new hardware that can do sparsity, you have to co-evolve like a new architecture that works with it, and then those two would pair together really well. Transformers and GPUs are like a match made in heaven. Honestly, transformers and TPUs are a match made in heaven, yeah. and we're lucky that they work on GPUs. Mm. But the folks at Google did design them for TPUs because TPUs and RNNs were not a match made in heaven. All right, we got three questions. One is on acceleration, one on exploration, and then just a takeaway for the audience. And you can, you know, either of you can start and the other can can finish. So the first one is what has already happened in AI that you thought would take much longer than it has? Stuff. Do you have an answer, John? Yeah, I have an answer. Everything. <laughs> um, you know, I I remember when GPT two came out, and I looked at that and went, "Eh, you know, that doesn't seem very exciting." And gosh, it's already one point five billion parameters. You know, they can't possibly keep getting better as they make it bigger. And then GPT three came out, and I was like, "Eh, it's slightly better at generating text. Eh, who cares?" And you know, I've been wrong again and again and again that you know, next token prediction, making things big, can produce useful models. To be fair. Pretty much all of us were wrong about that, so I can't take that precisely on myself. Otherwise, Google, Facebook, and Microsoft Research would all have had killer large language models way before OpenAI ever got the chance to do it. Um, OpenAI made a very strange bet, and it happened to work out very well. But yeah, diffusion models, like they're pretty stupid at the end of the day, and they produce beautiful images. It's astounding. Yeah, I think my, my answer is going to be like the, the chatbots at scale like idea. Like basically... I thought it would be quite a while before, you know, like hundreds of millions of people will be talking to AI models for a large portion of the data. But now there's many startups and companies, not not just OpenAI with ChatGPT, but but you know, like Character and others, where um, it's it's really astounding, like how many people are actually developing like emotional connections to these to these AI models. And I don't think I was would have predicted that like back in like September October of last year, but you know, the inflection point of the last six months has been really surprising. I haven't actually tried any of these these models, but I I don't know. It it seems like a very educational thing. It's like oh, talk to Genghis Khan, but like that's a very educational use case, right? right? Like, what, what do you think they they're using for? I guess emotional support. Right? Well, yes, I mean, I think some of, some of them are sort of like yeah, like either for emotional support or honestly just friends and stuff, right? I mean, I think like you know, 
loneliness, mental health is a really big problem everywhere. And so the most interesting I think I found is that if you go to the subreddits, you know, for those communities and you see like how they talk about and think about their like AI friends and like these characters, it's, it's, it's like out of a science fiction book. Like I would never expect this to be like reality. Already like, here, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you think are the most interesting unsolved questions in AI? I'm really interested in seeing like how far down we can go in terms of like precision and and stuff like that particularly like similar to the the bf16 fpa thing okay um there's oh, so like just quantize until like it's two bits so. yeah exactly <laughs> like or even like down to analog or something like that because because our brains obviously are not running on digital logic and stuff and so you know how many orders of magnitude do we have remaining and kind of like just these um things and i wonder if some of these problems just get easier at scale like there have been sort of hints in, in some papers that, you know, it becomes easier to quantize or easier to prune as you get bigger and bigger. So maybe as we almost as like a natural consequence of us scaling up over the next like few years, will we just naturally, it'll become easier and easier to just start going to like four bit or two bit or even binary like weights. I want to know how small we can go in a different way. I just want to know how efficient we can make it to get models that are this good. That was my research question for my entire PhD. Lottery tickets were one way to get at that. That's now kind of the research question I'm chasing at Mosaic in a sense. I, you know, OpenAI has shown us that there is one path to getting these incredible capabilities that is scale. I hope that's not the only path. I hope there are lots of ways of getting there. There's better modeling, there are better algorithms. I hate the neuroscience metaphors, but in some sense, our existence and our brains are, you know, evidence that there is at least one other way to get to these kinds of incredible capabilities that doesn't require, you know, a trillion parameters and megawatts and megawatts and gazillions of dollars. So, you know, I do wonder how small can we go? Is there another path? to get to these capabilities without having to do it this way. If it's there, I hope we find it at Mosaic. Yeah, my, my favorite fact is something on the order of the human brain runs on 30 watts of energy. And so we're, we're doing like dozens of orders of magnitude off on that one. I, I don't think you even get like one GPU, like one inference <laughs> GPU at that wattage. Yeah. Amazing. If there's one message you want everyone to remember about when thinking about this thing, there's a lot of, you know, fear-mongering, there's a lot of messaging being spread around, like, what should people think about an AI? What should be top of mind for them? I'll go for it, which is, you know, stay balanced. There are the people who really feed into the hype or who, you know, eat up the hype. There are the people who are, you know, big pessimists or react very strongly against the hype or to some extent are in denial. Stay balanced. Embrace the fact that we've built extraordinarily useful tools, um, but we haven't built AGI. And, you know, personally, I don't think we're anywhere close to that. You know, so stay balanced and follow the science. I think that's really, that's what we try to do around Mosaic. We try to focus on what's useful to people, what will, you know, hopefully make the world a better place. We try our best on that, but especially, you know, how we can follow the science and use data to be our guide, not just, you know, talk a lot, you know, trying to talk through our work instead. Yeah. And I would say also just kind of like research done in the open. I think like, you know, there's no competing with the, the open community, right? Just in volume, the number of like kind of eyeballs you basically have, like looking at your models, at the even at the problems with the models, at ways we can improve them. Um, I just think, you know, yeah, research done in the open, it, w- it will be the way forward, like both to keep our models safe and to basically like examine the consequences of these AI models like in the world. Awesome. Thank you so much, guys, for coming on. And thanks for keeping AI open. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us.